It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. And it is a pleasure to welcome to the show. I have with me Shosho. And I'm going to let Shosho pronounce her next two names because I don't want to mess them up. And we're going to start with her names because it's really interesting the story behind her names and also her background. She is uh, a Casca Dena Cree, also of Scottish heritage, but there's even more tied in there. We're going to find out about that. But she's on the show to talk about the Yukon Prize for Visual Arts, which she is one of the people uh, up for that prize, which which is coming up in uh, on Saturday, November 20th. And there is a grand prize of $20,000 on the line, folks. So, Shosho, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. So please explain to us about your wonderful name, because it is, uh, I'm going to let you say your full name, if you don't mind. Sure. Uh, Shosho Esquiro. And my Casca name is Billy Licka, which means butterfly. Yeah. And uh, now tell me more about that Esquiro, because there's a tie-in with yet another element of your, your heritage, I believe, or, or at least someone that raised you. Yeah, so I was adopted by my uh, father that raised me, and he's from Atlin, and he's Clinkit, and he's Clinkit and Filipino, so I have a Filipino last name. <laughs> That's pretty cool. And yeah. uh, now you were, of course, uh, you were born in the Yukon, but I understand you're now living in the Vancouver area? Yeah, so it's um, with COVID, I've been... Um, I actually was in the Yukon for almost a year Hmm. and um, I've been preparing for a show down South, my first solo show. So um, I migrated down there in May. Um, And then my fiance lives in Las Vegas. So I kind of go in between those three places. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Now please tell us about uh, the show in Vancouver, Doctrine of Discovery, right? Oh goodness. It, is um, so exciting for me to to have the opportunity to have my first solo show as an artist, uh, a woman, and being Indigenous. Um, it's it's quite amazing that I have the opportunity to have the solo show, and it will be up until June. And um, it's really my life's work because a lot of my work um, has meaning and purpose, and I like to talk about through my work uh, important issues in the indigenous community mm-hmm. and as society as a whole. So um, within that, um, within the show, uh, we're talking about, of course, the doctrine of discovery, all those things that are umbre- umbrellaed under that, um, such as residential schools, uh, land, uh, the relationship that indigenous people have had with the Catholic church and not getting an apology. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're, we're discussing some pretty heavy subject, subject matter, um, but doing it through my art form, fashion, and paintings, um, it's really great. On the 26th, I'm doing an artist, or an artist tour for teachers hmm. in the Lower Mainland. So nice. it's really my goal to, to have access, for people to have access to it's basically an educational tool and to really talk about these things that are still affecting us um, over the 
the time that um, since the doctrine of discovery. Yeah. yeah. Now, if people want to find out more and actually see more and then see what you what uh, your work looks like, they can go to uh, the yukonprize.ca website. Tell me more about your background in terms of where you studied, how you became interested in fashion. Oh, goodness. So living in the north, in very remote communities, you don't have access. Like we didn't have TV, let alone cable Mm. or um, video games or any of that kind of stuff growing up. So it really allowed me uh, creatively to um, just grow um, my skill. And as well as having a mother, my mother is a professional artist. Mm. And so I was very privileged to grow Mm. up. under her mentorship and right. her guidance and her encouragement. So that really helped me with my career. And um, being a fashion designer is something I, I can remember as far back as five years old as something that I wanted to do. Really? I've just been kind of chipping away on that um, for the past 36 years. So <laughs> <laughs> um, to be recognized as a Yukon artist too, just is so meaningful to me because I'm very proud and I represent that in all of my travels. So just even the acknowledgement alone to be included with other amazing Yukon artists is just really a dream come true for me. Now, you've been kind of described as as sort of uh, Yukon's or Vancouver's best kept secret. (laughs) (laughs) So what what do you think that means? What do you think that means? Well, for me, it means because I've done a lot of things uh, internationally uh, in Paris, New York. I've done um, I've been part of a show that showed in the Smithsonian as well as many other right. um, very well respected museums uh, in North America. But sometimes when where you're from, you're kind of, um, you know, they've known about you. So, you know, you've really made it when you get acknowledged from <laughs> home. <laughs> right. Uh, so when did you first start to get your work out there? I think it was, so I'm 41 now, and I think it was when I was approaching my 30s, because it's always something I dabbled in, but I always had a nine to five job. Mm. Um, and just that that transition is very scary for an artist, right. kind of put all your chips in one basket, so right. to say. Um, so I remember very clearly I was actually in New Zealand and I might be pronouncing it wrong, Rotorua, which is a Maori capital um, in in um, New Zealand. And we were sitting outside in, in a hot tub and I look up and I, and I said, that looks like the Milky Way. And my sister said, that is the Milky Way. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it just kind of hit me. I just thought you know, I just, I better just do this. So, because I definitely don't live my, I don't ever say like shoulda, coulda, woulda. Those are words that never come out of my mouth. Mm. So I wanted to um, just take that big leap of faith. And I even, you know, at the time I was managing a gym in North Van and and I said, you know, if my manager says anything to me, I'm um, actually, I was the manager. She was the owner. I said, I'm going to leave. And so when I came back from my vacation, she said something that didn't sit right with me. And I just quit right there on the spot. Mm. <laughs> and I remember the, the feeling of walking out of there and, you know, feeling quite proud of myself. But as I got further away from the gym, my shoulders kind of came down and I thought, <laughs> OK, what now? <laughs> right. 
<laughs> yeah. So I would say like, I was thinking about that before uh, we were talking this morning and yeah, it has been at least about 11 years. I would say for sure. I was the professional artist. And then um, before that, it's something that I always did on the side mm. and um and just that transition was exciting and scary all at once. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm sure it was. In terms of the the history of Indigenous people, the kind of materials you're going to use, how are they going to be used, why are they going to be used, and, and to some degree, maybe, how do I defend what I'm doing with this uh, because of uh, just the, the stigma that, that fashion has? Does that make some sense to you? Definitely. Yeah, that's a very interesting question. Because for me, it was really um, breaking my own trail, so to say, in the in as Yukoners would say. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so within that, um, because I'm not the the kind of the fast fashion mm. and the effects that fashion fast fashion does have on the environment is something that I'm really not interested in. Mm. And, um, and so I kind of had to find my own niche, like, how am I going to do this? Because everything I make is, is like one of a kind. Yeah. And, um, and then within, um, it's, it's quite interesting because within the, the Cascaway, we really took pride in, in our, our textiles and, um, and how we dressed. And there's not a whole lot of um, historical photos or just historical pieces that surround that. And so that's quite interesting. And that's actually helped me in my career because I, I work with a lot of curators from different museums. And when you talk about some of these larger nations that, that have, you know, um, I was adopted by Clinkett and, and they have just a, 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 a lot of, historical things that people can go back and say, oh, this is, you know, what they wore or, you know. And so for me, um, I'm, I feel like I'm not, uh, what I'm doing is not that different than my ancestors creating these, you know, pieces. And then within that, growing up in the Yukon, you know, all the things that you have to, that you make have to be very well well made and mm. so I grew up watching you know my grandma or my aunties sew these you know mittens with fur these hats and right. you know my uncles would go out on their skidoos for hours and so you know you'd have to be confident that you're dressed properly because if you of get course. frostbite you know yep. you could lose a toe or a yeah. finger and and so growing up with with that expectation of whatever you sew has to be well made, um, I think helped me with my career. And then um, seeing that all these beautiful things are made. Um, and, you know, some of those, uh, you know, on the runway in Paris, um, you know, who knows who buys those, the collectors or, right. you know, very rich people. <laughs> um but for me, as you know, I realize I have a short time here on Earth and I have this beautiful platform that um, I've been blessed with and some gifts from the creator. Mm. And I believe, you know, when I start working, everything starts with prayer. Mm. And so that's also very important to me and giving thanks to these animals that I'm using, the, the, the materials 
Um, but something that came to mind when you were asking that question. So the first show I did in Paris is called uh, Worth Our Weight in Gold. Mm. And weight <laughs> is W-A-I-T. And mm. for me, that was when Stephen Harper um, was prime minister. And he said no um, to a national inquiry for murdered, missing indigenous women. And as an indigenous woman, I, it just really felt that we weren't a uh, valued part of society. Mm. And, uh, you know, that saying worth, worth your weight in gold, yeah. you know? And yeah. so within that collection, I used a lot of 24 karat gold beads. Right. Um, and so that's a good example of how sometimes my materials can also reflect part of the overall message. Nicely said. Thank you so much for that explanation. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. And of course, you can also listen on the iHeartRadio app. And if you download the app, you can uh, listen anywhere you go. And uh, this is Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. My guest here on the show is uh, Shosho Esquiro. She is a visual artist. She's a very, a very uh, well-established uh, fashion artist, as you heard her say. She's been in shows around the world, and she's uh, just recently had a show in Vancouver, uh, a solo show. It's called Doctrine of Discovery. And she is one of the finalists for the Yukon Prize for Visual Arts that is coming up on Saturday, November. 20th and so it's a pleasure here to uh, have her on the show um, you know as you were talking there I've just been looking at uh, uh, the yukonprize.ca website which they have uh, of course uh, showing all the artists and they have a page for yourself and uh, as I scroll down and I see the images of uh, some of the work that you've done and perhaps uh, some of the things that you have entered in this uh, competition um, and the uh, I see that also the names are really really cleverly uh, chosen as well for this but you get to also to see the very detailed work that you are that you work in I'm so glad you explained all of those things about uh, the Yukon and about uh, the work and watching your aunties and making uh, some of the things that they would prepare to make sure that uh, people can survive those harsh winters in the Yukon as they go out uh, on the land you know uh, but there's this piece and I believe it was from the Paris show uh, the stolen uh, this, they stole the children from the land and now they steal the land from the children um, and it's got this uh, this beautiful piece that you created with this um, sort of patch on the back that says exactly what what, uh, what I just said there um, so congratulations to you on, on all of these things is there anything else you want to add to that? Yeah, that was actually a piece from um, my second show in Paris, and that's called No Apology Necessary. Hmm. And that was uh, speaking to Pope Francis uh, <laughs> when he denied uh, an apology. And so I really wanted to take the power back, you know, and although it'd be very beautiful to have an apology, yeah. that's not going to decide whether we heal as a people. Hmm. And right. um, so that was the message behind that. And then that picture was actually taken in front of Notre Dame before it mm. partially burned. Wow. And so that was quite a message since um, we went directly there right after the second show on the Eiffel Tower. Right. And um, it actually, it's, it's quite uh, interesting because I, I do talk about some really heavy things and something and... Um, so we had, you know, there's one jacket with a picture of the Pope upside down. 
um, to me, expressing that our people are in distress, much as you would hang a flag upside down. Mm. And um, so we were causing quite a commotion. Um, There was, I think, three professional photographers, the models and my mom and I. (laughs) And so they're taking we were taking pictures and and a woman came over and she goes, what's going on here? What's the meaning of this? And Mm. she was actually quite angry. Sure. And um, I took her aside and I took the time and I, I told her um, how residential school has affected myself and my family and the intergenerational trauma right. and myself being the first um, generation not to go to residential school. So by the end uh, of just that small interaction, she apologized and, and she <laughs> said, how can we get this, you know, more people <laughs> to know about this? And she was actually a tourist from Australia. Wow. And so that simple, like, little interaction, you know, changed, um, you know, her thought. And she just had a small moment to talk about it with me. And we weren't arguing and we were very respectful to each other. Mm. And so it just kind of creates a dialogue. And um, an interesting, I'll just a short little interesting um, info about that vest is that that's beaded in 24 karat gold beads, but it, it was very special to me. And I was doing a show in Las Vegas at Mandalay Bay and I had somebody approach me about buying it. And mm. I kind of put a very high price on it because I mm-hmm. didn't want to sell it. Right. And she goes, sold. <laughs> really? So she actually purchased it. And, um, and so she's an indigenous singer songwriter. So she goes on tour and does lots of concerts. And so she purchased it from me. And um, so that was quite, it was rewarding because it, I showed myself that, you know, sometimes because when you're an artist, um, sometimes you, you don't put as much value onto your work or you reflect right. within your own personal budget, mm-hmm. how much, you know, things should cost. Yeah. And so that was a good lesson to me. And she was gracious enough to lend it back to us Ah. to put on display at the Bill Reed. So it all worked out. (laughs) That's nice. What a great story. And and I'm so glad you mentioned that because I'm sure there's a lot of perhaps other artists out there that are listening, perhaps even in the fashion industry that are working on things. And uh, that idea of what is my work worth? What is this, you know, an actual value uh, to other people and what would people pay for it? I'm sure that's something that many people grapple with when they are trying to yes. decide, right? Yes, definitely. Now, I want to take take us, and I'm so glad you're talking about your work, talking about working with beads and all of these things. There's one piece uh, uh, that is actually, it's a very beautiful piece. And I would say that as I look at it, I'm, I'm thinking this either belongs... Uh, on a on a on a Hollywood uh, star going down, you know, the red carpet or in a film somewhere, and I'm and I'm and I, I'm talking about Ascension. Yeah, I was thinking you were talking about Ascension. <laughs> and of course, you know, it's 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 wonderful. I mean, it's it's not something you'd want to wear on a cold Yukon day for sure. <laughs> but the intricacy of what you've done uh, and the the kind of things um, that you have brought together in this is is quite uh, spectacular. Lynx paws, recycled silk woven prayer scarves, laser cut rabbit fur, velvet, silk, uh, seed beads. Uh, platinum beads, uh, 24 karat beads, sterling silver. I mean, wow, there's a lot of stuff in there. Yes. That actually has an interesting story, too, because the Smithsonian has been wanting to purchase something from mm. me. 
and that was the second piece they wanted to um, potentially purchase. And but the Lynx paws are illegal for mm. for right. to be sold across the border. Right. So they questioned maybe removing the Lynx paws, but those paws are actually from the Yukon, and they were trapped by my dear mm. uncle Amos, who's in mm. his nineties, and so it was very much part of that piece. And so I was just overjoyed that uh, the Yukon Permanent Art Collection um, purchased it. So it's going to stay here in the Yukon. Mm. Um, but Ascension is a piece that's dedicated to both of my, to my grandma and my grandpa that have passed away. Um, so in my belief, I believe that, you know, we're all energy and energy doesn't die, The you know. Right. And so you start at the bottom with all these colorful beaded flowers that are cut out. And, you, and as it slowly goes up to the shoulders, it's almost like it's ascending into the spirit world. And so up near the shoulders, it's just pure silver platinum bead. And, um, and then one for each, you know, one side for my grandma, one mm. side for my grandpa with, with the prayer mm. scarf, the, the woven mm. deconstructed prayer scarf. So that's um, probably the, one of the most specialist pieces um, to myself. Um, and that took the longest that I've spent. And again, really pushing myself, um, you know, with all those cutouts and cause I, I cut it out after I beaded it and my mom almost fell over. She didn't really want me to, um, cut it, <laughs> uh. but again, it's just kind of like challenge. I have to challenge myself. And right. so that, that piece, um, is very dear to me and I'm, and I'm super, excited that it's, it's going to stay here safe in the yeah. care of the Yukon permanent art collection and, mm. and pieces like that. It's part of my legacy. So when I'm gone, you know, yeah. hopefully that will inspire, you know, another young artist to, to push themselves and, right. and, um, you know, contemporary or not, it's still native art. Yeah. And, and, and as you were talking and I'm, I'm looking at it, I'm looking at it looks like it's really got some weight to it. And it really looks like it would have taken quite a bit of time to put together. I mean, it looks like there's a lot of work in that. It did. I, I helped care for my grandma who had Alzheimer's and passed mm -hmm. away from cancer at the end. But I worked on it beside her, her bed. Um, as she was transitioning to the spirit world. And so it was very dear to me and a, a lot of love. And not only that, a lot of healing. Yeah. Um, so, you know, pieces that I work on, they, they don't only serve as, you know, um, just pieces that I make. They, it's also a, a part of a healing for myself. I'm glad you said that because now that you do say that and I look at it, I, I can really see that in there. Let's face it, it's, it's sort of revealing, right? It's a revealing yes. top, but <laughs> it doesn't come across that way. Well, I'm so glad you say that. Thank you. It's just something that is, is very complementary to the female form. It's, it's really, really beautiful. So congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, people that want to see that, they can go, as I say, to the uh, yukonprize.ca website uh, and uh, look for Shosho, his name in there, in one of the finalists for this year, which is coming up, as I said, on uh, November the 20th. Uh, and, you know, all the best in that, uh, Shosho. Congratulations on all your achievements. And I'm so, uh, so happy that we had the chance to talk. And, and I wish you all the best in the future as well. 
thank you. I, I, I thank you for taking the time and I just appreciate it so much. And I'm just honored to, to be a finalist and I'm of course excited and a bit nervous <laughs> and but just to be included as a Yukon artist and um, among all the very talented other artists is, is just a real privilege and it's very exciting to me. Well, we'll be watching for that on November 20th and uh, we certainly would like to have you back on at another time when you have uh, more new and fabulous uh, fashion designs coming up in the future. What, speaking of that, what are you working on for the future? I would love to. So the, the show um, at the Bill Reed will be up until June, but mm -hmm. we're also launching a book. Okay. That will come out alongside with it. And we're hoping to get it out um, before Christmas. Um, but it's a whole book about the exhibition mm. um, as well as mo actually modeling. You know, we worked with uh, Supernatural's Indigenous Modeling Agency. So we have the clothes actually on the women. Um, and then we actually, most excitingly, we have the foreword written by a Vogue editor. Oh, wow. Nice. So that's exciting. And that book, I'm hoping, um, will make it into some school libraries mm. and um, and then hopefully create a workshop and perhaps tour, fly around, flutter around <laughs> and spread the message. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Now, if people want to find out more about you, do you have a website or something where people can go to? Um, I'm on Instagram right okay. now and within the preparation of that big exhibition, I just yep. kind of uh, pulled out of all social media for over right. a year just to okay. really focus and not have any yeah. distractions. Um, you know, yeah. distractions. Um, so I, I'm um, on Instagram uh, at Shosho Esquiro okay. and um, that's basically the, where you can go and take a look at my work and see some of my travels and, and my nice. family. Um, cool. I love visiting home hmm. um, to Tutalini, Ross River. And within that, I get to work with different elders and, you know, um, work on um, tanning hides and hmm. beading and, and um, working alongside my uncle Amos, whether we're working <laughs> on muskrat or beaver. And so you get a better sense of, um, what I'm all about probably on my Instagram. <laughs> right. Cool. All right. Well, thanks so much once again for taking the time to join us on the show. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you and, uh, and I want to thank you and congratulate you and wish you all the best on this uh, Yukon Prize for Visual Arts uh, that is coming up on Saturday, November 20th and wish you all the best of luck in that. Thank you so much. All right. Nyawa and Chimigwech. And uh, we will talk to you again in the future. That is Shosho Esquiro. That is this portion of Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. Don't go away. We're going to be right back with more right here on Element FM. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That is 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. And you can also listen on the iHeartRadio app. Download that app and then you can listen anywhere you go. It is a great pleasure to welcome to the show today. I have the co-hosts of Story Keepers with me. And they first met some time ago at Carleton University at an event around storytelling. Interesting how they've come back to now uh, join 
co-hosting a show called Story Keepers, which launched in March of this year, 2021. Jennifer David and Wab Gishik Rice is, are here on the show to talk about Story Keepers. They have done a number of shows now, and the whole idea of this, this show, of course, um, is to talk about Indigenous stories and have guests on the show to explore their stories. And, uh, and they also say right off the top that there's a spoiler alert because they go in and talk about things and give you spoilers uh, throughout the the, uh, the interviews that they do. So it is a pleasure to have both of them here, and I'm going to tell you a little bit more about both of them as well. So Jennifer David, she's a member of the Shaplow Cree First Nation, and she was born and raised in the Omushkego Treaty 9 territory, but she has lived in the Ottawa area for the last 30 years. She has worked in the Indigenous Communications area of consulting uh, for 25 years and she was director of communications for the Aboriginal People's Television Network and now works as a senior consultant for Envision Insight Group in Ottawa. Her favorite place when she was growing up in her hometown of Shaplow was, can you guess it? It was the public library, of course. And we're going to talk about that and their love, both of their loves of, of reading. We'll get into that a little bit. She has degrees in journalism and English literature from Carleton University. And she took a course in Indigenous literature. And that what's, that's what kind of sparked her interest uh, of looking into this world. She's a voracious reader. And in 2004, she wrote a book of interviews with Indigenous writers across Canada. It's called Story Keepers and Conversations with Aboriginal Writers, and hence that inspired this name for this podcast. In 2010, she self-published a book about APTN, Original People, Original Television, the launching of Aboriginal People Television Network. She currently writes freelance articles on Indigenous art and artists for the National Gallery, National Gallery of Canada magazine. Wabgishik Rice is an author and journalist from Wasoxing First Nation in uh, Georgian Bay area of Ontario. And his first short story collection, Midnight Sweat Lodge was inspired by his experience of growing up in the Anishinaabe community and won an Independent Publishers Book Award in 2012. His debut novel, Legacy, followed in 2014. A French translation was published in 2017. And his latest novel, Moon on the Crusted Snow, became a national bestseller and received widespread critical claim, including the Evergreen Award of 2019. Now, he started his experience uh, of journalism in 1996 as an exchange student in northern Germany, writing articles about being an indigenous youth in a foreign country for newspapers back in Canada. He graduated from Ryerson University in journalism in 2002, and he spent most of his journalism career with the CBC and uh, as a video journalist and web writer and producer and radio host. In 2014, he received the Anishinaabe Nation's uh, Debewin Citation for Excellence in First Nations Storytelling. And uh, he has since moved on to explore uh, his own writing experience. And it's a pleasure to have both of them here. And I could go on, of course, there's so much more to say about both Wab and Jennifer, but it's a pleasure to have them here. So I want to say, say go and welcome to the show, to Wab and Jennifer. Bonjour, Ani. Yes, hello, Wache, and hello. <laughs> uh, great to have you guys here, and congratulations on the podcast, uh, Story Keepers. Thank, Thank you. you. It's been fun. 
Yeah, so I guess it has been because you're still doing it, and uh, <laughs> you've had a number. You know, as I was looking through the the website, and I wanted to talk a little bit about the website as well because I really like the way it's laid out. I love the fact that you not only uh, welcome people to the show, you you talk about uh, your love of reading, you invite people that have that love to also explore this along with you. You have these great episodes where you uh, talk about books, but you also bring bring in guests um, and and have them on the show to talk about these things and talk about the books that you're looking at. Um, you also have, I really like how you have the, uh, the books uh, shelf that people can go to to find out more about the books you're exploring and where they can find them. That's always cool. And... Um, and so you also have stuff about your, your guest host, which is, is really wonderful. I really like the way it's laid out. And I, I noticed that uh, the way you describe it is classic and recent book storytelling. Uh, <laughs> can, you ex- can you guys explain that a little bit more for me? Well, you know, there is this uh, excellent body of work created by some trailblazing indigenous authors over the past like 40, 50 years, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, very influential and formative books by people, you know, like Lee Miracle, mm-hmm. Thomas King, Marilyn Dumont, Maria Campbell, and so on, right? So those are the books that inspired generations that followed. Um, and what we're seeing now uh, is, you know, this resurgence of storytelling from indigenous communities through literature and what we're seeing are books by indigenous authors crawling up the bestseller lists uh being nominated for and winning many major awards so those are sort of the recent uh, i guess modern classics you could say like you know the books that win awards and make the shortlist and so on um but there is this sort of long journey uh this narrative arc so to speak of indigenous literature and i think even though we only focus on one book a month i think that's all anybody has the capacity for really (laughs) um we want to help tell that story too you know of both the classic and the modern uh, examples of storytelling. So, uh, but they all interconnect, right? Um, You know, the modern authors, especially of the younger generation that we talk about and talk to have been influenced by the authors I mentioned before of the previous generations, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Because they blaze that trail more widely for what we're seeing today. So yeah, it's important to bring all those books and all those people together in these discussions. Mm, Okay. Uh, Jennifer, as I mentioned off the top you guys go way back uh, I know Wob mentioned in a conversation you guys had in your first episode uh, about the show that, that you you may have met at Carleton University around a, a storytelling <laughs> event yes we were uh, and I can't even remember who the professor was now maybe it was Andrew Cardozo I, I think um, it was it was a media class mm. uh, through the journalism school at Carleton, and it was on. I don't exactly know what the course was, but but the, a portion of that course had to do about uh, about the media and the history of you know kind of indigenous media. And so the professor had both of us in, and I was there to talk about what it was like to uh, launch and work with uh, an indigenous 
television uh, network sort of media. And Wab was there to talk about what it was like to be an Indigenous person working for mainstream media. And so we just got chatting and uh, we got along really well. And I've, I've sort of followed him and uh, read his books as mm. well. And, uh, and had always had in the back of my mind that kernel that if ever I was going to, you know, move on this idea that I had for a podcast that Wab was going to be the co-host. <laughs> Wab, what, what came first for you, that love of reading that spurred the journalism? Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, I really enjoyed, I think, going back even further, just, you know, the experience of engaging with stories as a kid on the res, you mm. know, hearing from elders and hearing stories from family members and learning about my Anishinaabe heritage that way in my community is, you know, I think the foundation for mm. all of this that mm. I do now. Uh, and as like the years went on through my formal education, I became more engaged with like literature, you know, reading and writing and so on. And that really, I think, took off by the time I got to high school mm. and took like formal English class, you mm. know, in grade nine and, you know, just uh, read books on a sort of deeper level in that sense. And yeah, that's really what's um, catalyzed my, I guess, passion for reading. And and that turned into an interest in creative writing as well. Mm. And, you know, I didn't really see how that could be uh, any sort of career or any sort of other creative path forward other than a hobby. Right. But as I mentioned in the podcast, I had this aunt, uh, my auntie Elaine, who uh, shared with me books by indigenous authors when I was a teenager, by the time I was in about grade 11 i think and that that really changed everything for me you know it really uh showed me that our experiences could be shared in literature and that you know i could be empowered to try it on my own and maybe one day uh, become a published writer and yeah this is all before i got any sort of journalistic experience um that happened as you mentioned uh, david during my rotary uh mm. exchange experience um towards the end of my high school years right. uh, but yeah it was definitely the the so, sort of storytelling through literature and oral storytelling too that um predated everything else for sure okay and uh, jennifer what about for you if i can ask you the same question well it was the it was the love of reading for sure that came first and uh as you mentioned in the in the intro you know i grew up in a small in a small town not a lot of access to books my my parents didn't read a lot uh, we didn't have a lot of books at home like after having you know kids books so it was the school library the town library and i i went through as many books as i could and i just had this love of literature and i did want to study um english literature literature at university and my dad who was a very wise man at the time said hmm and like he doesn't say much but he said hmm and what will you do with that degree and I he said will you be a teacher and I said heck no I don't want to be a teacher mm. he said oh interesting and that was all he said so mm. I'm like huh maybe that might not be the degree I should get so I literally did one of those you know in high school when you see the guidance counselor and they make you do one of those tests where they figure out like what mm. job you would be good at and so I did that test and out of the end of it one of the things was a journalist I'm like a journalist I'm like what really is a journalist mm. right living in a small town mm. um, there was no radio station all we had was CBC radio mm. and there wasn't anybody in town that worked for that radio station we had no TV stations mm. we had like a, a bi-weekly little newspaper and that was it so I didn't really know what journalism was and yet I thought journalism and what my 
idea of journalism was essentially that somebody would pay me to be nosy and ask people <laughs> questions and help them tell their stories. Like that was my idea of journalism. <laughs> then when I got into J school, I discovered that for most jur- journalism jobs or news jobs, you had to like politics. And, mm. you know, I'd, I mm. had this idea of being this foreign correspondent mm. and traveling the world and I hate politics and I thought, you know, <laughs> I'm just not interested in right. news, but I, but I really liked the idea of uh, film and television. And I thought I might go into, you know, documentary or filmmaking, but I just, I just didn't have what it took to, to do that. So I decided that um, I would get into communications instead. And that's how I ended up at APTN doing communications. And I sort of fell mm. in love with that. You know, if you, right. if you have something you're passionate about, I love to, you know, promote and communicate that. So that's where that came from. But all through it, I did have a love of of reading. I loved going to other places, learning about, you know, different people and their mm. perspectives. And um, yeah, have always been a been a reader. Okay. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. This is Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. And my guests here on the show are Jennifer David and Babgishik Rice, and they are the co-hosts of Story Keepers, which launched earlier this year. It is a podcast which you can go online to uh, hear, and uh, they have guests that come in. They talk about books. They explore the books. Uh, indigenous books, I'm specifically referring to here. And uh, they bring in co-hosts as well. So it's pleasure to have them here to talk about story keepers now you know you guys both were these rotary uh correspondents so to speak uh, and and traveled abroad i'm wondering about how how was that seen i would say from the perspective of your indigenous upbringing because you know i know I would always hear on Six Nations, many people didn't want to leave the community. They didn't want to, even for school, you know, they want to stay close to home. How was that, how was that seen in your communities and how, and why was it interesting to you to want to do this? So Jennifer, I'll I'll ask you first. Well, first, uh, I think because I'm of mixed ancestry, and I mm. have to say it's from my mom's, not the non-Indigenous side mm. of me, I think that gave me that that lust for for travel and that love of 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 um, being adventurous. Mm. My dad, you know, we we lived, you know, on the edge of town uh, by the river, and my dad never learned to drive a car, mm. but he had his boat mm. on the river, and he was always out hunting and fishing and on the land and he never wanted to travel so I didn't get that from that side so I'm I'm thinking that it came from my non-indigenous right. side because my dad would always shake his head is like why would you want to go there mm, right, right. <laughs> so that's uh, that that's um but but he always encouraged me to be curious right. uh, of the world around me and right. pay attention to mm. what was around me mm-hmm. uh, and probably like some people growing up in I mean again I didn't live on the reserve in fact, right. there was no reserve for right. Chapel Creek. That's another story, which I hope to write someday in right. the future. So I grew up in the town and that was, and that's different. Many people growing up in small towns are, some are desperate to leave. And sure. I was one of them who was right. like, I need to go somewhere else. <laughs> right. Okay. Thank you. Wab? Uh, well, I had no idea what I wanted to do for college or university. And 
And um, when I found out about the Rotary opportunity, uh, my parents were very supportive. Mm. Um, they thought it would be a good chance to sort of, uh, I guess, disconnect from, I guess, Canadian education for a little while mm. and, and, you know, figure out my path. And, you know, all my friends and relatives on the res uh, were really supportive of it, too. They thought it was a pretty neat idea. Mm. And um, I, I don't know, maybe that was due to the era, you know, this was the sort of mid to late 1990s when I guess the world was opening up a little more. And, you know, my community is not northern or far away by any stretch of the imagination, right? It's right, right beside sure. Perry Sound and yeah. it's only about a two hour north of, uh, drive north of Toronto. So yeah. I guess, you know, exploring the world wasn't too far-fetched of a notion. And having the opportunity to explore journalism as a result, you know, I was contacted by the Anishinaabe News, which is published by the Nishnabek Nation mm. about a month before I left. And they said, hey, we heard you're going to uh, Germany for a year and we'd really like to know more about your experiences there. And that sort of, you know, was my first job in journalism. Mm. They offered to pay me to write uh, monthly articles for them about being a Nishnabek kid in northern Germany. Mm. And so in that sense, I was really encouraged to sort of be myself as a Nishnabek person over there and be an ambassador, you know, not just for Canada, but for our people, most importantly. And um, it was a really cool way for me to be empowered to uh, write stories, uh, share experiences, uh, but most importantly, uh, relay the truths about who we are, who we were back then as Anishinaabek, right? right? So, yeah, I was very encouraged to to undertake that whole thing. Jennifer, one of the things you said, uh, I remember hearing you say, was that you, you think there should be more Indigenous voices, more, you know, more of this kind of, of thing. And maybe that's part of the reason you were thinking this way back uh, I guess about 10 years ago I think is when you said you, you had this idea for this this idea of the show and uh, and sort of like a book club um, and I get the sense that you you also wanted I guess part two things one to encourage reading and and education at the same time would you guys agree with that Wap? Oh yeah for sure uh, and I think importantly to show that literature or fiction or nonfiction or whatever else are viable avenues for sharing indigenous stories and experiences, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and the best way to inspire people of our all ages to explore that is to just show them what's out there and to have deeper conversations about the materials that, you know, have enriched our lives as readers, writers, and journalists, and our fellow guest hosts as uh, artists in whatever realm they work in, right. you know? Right. Um, and I think it, with our show, that passion really comes through. Mm. And uh, our approach, I think, really is, I wouldn't necessarily say it's like straight up laid back, but, you know, we don't have like an agenda by any stretch of the imagination. Mm -hmm. We just want to get people together who enjoyed or had deep thoughts uh, about a book and just sort of riff off that, you know, mm -hmm. like we don't really script anything. Um, mm -hmm. We just have some rough ideas of things we want to touch on with the guest, and we allow the conversation to unfold in kind of an organic way, much like a book club or much like friends or relatives gathering, you know, in a living room or around a fire or whatever else, you know, and of course, we're not going to totally replicate that in a digital medium like a mm. podcast. But mm. at the same time, we can hopefully open the door to other people to have similar conversations. Right. right? And I think that's what the underlying spirit of Storykeepers is, right. in my opinion, anyway. Okay. Mm -hmm. 
yeah, Jennifer, do you exactly. want to add to that? Well, and this idea of uh, of of does it? Uh, we do want people to to think about uh, reading uh, reading Indigenous books by Indigenous authors, and yes, education, mm. because we know that for Indigenous people, it's a very complicated history and, and relationship with education, and we know that everybody is going through pretty much a Western mainstream education system, uh, and I think if this encourages people to demand that we incorporate indigenous voices into that education i think that we will have done a good thing Mm -hmm. okay um i wanted to to ask about what what have you learned out of this process thus far what do you take away from this first season wob well this shouldn't have been so much of a surprise for me but i was sort of intrigued to learn about some of the common threads through the books themselves and through the guest hosts. Mm. And I think every indigenous nation, uh, you know, as diverse and as beautifully vibrant as they all are and distinct from one another, one another, there are some common experiences. There are some common storytelling threads through each of them, regardless of where they uh, exist on this land. And, you know, in a lot of the materials we've explored, a lot of the stories, whether it's poetry, fiction, or nonfiction, um, a lot of them are a response to colonialism, um, which is quite profound when you think about it. But it's also, again, as I mentioned earlier, not that surprising. Right. But it's not just about, you know, exploring that trauma and sitting with it. Um, each of the stories that we've explored talks about healing, talks about moving beyond colonialism while acknowledging its impact and so on, uh, but celebrating ourselves as Indigenous people and our stories and how our cultures and stories and languages, albeit damaged, have managed to uh, thrive uh, in this modern era despite everything that happened to them, despite mm-hmm. genocide, right? right? right. Um, so, yeah, in that sense, it really is a celebration of, of a lot of the things we really wanted to get to. So uh, that's been, you know, as I, as I mentioned, it shouldn't have been that eye-opening for me, but it was at the same time, I think, because it, this has really been the first time I've had the chance to do this, these kinds of discussions in this kind of format. Mm-hmm. You know, um, at CBC, you know, I was limited to just a few minutes at a time sure. on the air, you know, but here <laughs> we can go half an hour, 40 minutes on a particular theme or, or book, right? So yeah. it's very rewarding for me in that sense. Yeah, I, I understand that. I love the this long format show that I do for exactly the same reason. And I get so mm-hmm. many people commenting on the fact that they love it as well. It's not just a, a headline, you know, or a couple of mm-hmm. minutes to talk about yeah. something. Uh, Jennifer, based on what Wob was just saying about this and, and your idea of, of taking, you know, and developing story keepers, uh, looking to the future, what are you, what are you hoping and, and what have you taken? taken out of this uh, so far? I, I agree with Wab. It's been fascinating to see the connections uh, between the different stories and the authors and, and the themes that, that come up. And Wab mentioned that, you know, response to colonialism. Yes, that, that we, we saw that. I'd say I saw two other themes that we saw in every book that we, that we talked about. One was family. 
Mm. Who is our family? What, what does it mean? You know, kinship mm. bonds. We create families, mm. even if our families were, were broken from us. What are those bonds that sort of bring us together? And the other was was this theme of stories and of storytelling that in, in all the books, the characters somehow are themselves, you know, storytelling or using stories or the importance of stories or remembering stories uh, as part of the, the actual book. So I thought that was fascinating. Now that we've done what nine, nine books, um, I think that 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 was an interesting theme that that came out of it. The other thing um, that I got out of this first season was how uh, we were so surprised with how popular the podcast has become. I, I really thought it would be you know just like you said, David, like a few book geeks, you know, kind of just <laughs> tuning into a very niche podcast. Mm. But we have since heard uh, in in Ottawa. Uh, Anyways, I know for sure, because I mean, that's where I'm based, that the school boards have been very interested in the podcast and they uh, sometimes assign those podcast episodes as part of their, you know, it, English literature classes. And and that that's that's quite thrilling. I'm quite happy to hear that. So that was a, a bit of a surprise. And we have way more followers than, again, I think that we had anticipated. So that's a wonderful thing uh, as well. And going forward, I think that's that's simply what we want to keep on doing. Mm. Now, I know that Wob is going to have to step back and he can tell you about that. We'll probably have fewer episodes, but that's because he, you know, he's, he's taking on his own mm. writing career and mm -hmm. supporting that too. So I, we, we I want to make sure that, that we support Wob uh, <laughs> and, and I'd love for Wob to, to get more exposure for his work uh, as an author through the podcast, right. uh, because that was one of the, the goals I hope that we would get out of it too. It's been great speaking with both of you. Thank you so much for taking the time uh, to share the uh, uh, first season of uh, Story Keepers. And I wish you guys all the best with what you do in the future with this. And of course, uh, both individually in what you're doing uh, to uh, to move forward as well. Love the idea, Jennifer, of what you said that the schools are looking into this and, and you know, using that as a, as a resource. Wonderful. Great to hear. All fabulous stuff. So I, I congratulate you. I wish you all the best. And can we tell people how they can listen. Yes, Wob's the technical expert of this of our team. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it's available through most major podcast platforms, yep. so Apple, Spotify, etc. Um, you can also hear it directly through our website, storykeeperspodcast.ca. Okay. Uh, and yeah, you can find us on Facebook at Storykeepers Podcast, Twitter at Storykeepers Pod, and on Instagram at Storykeepers Pod as well. So find us all on social media um, and. Yeah, you'll learn about our guest hosts and what we have coming up and so on. And uh, yeah, just Shamiguach, thanks a lot for your interest. My yeah, pleasure. Yeah, me too. We also have book giveaways. So if you follow yes. us on social media, we like to give away uh, some books of the ones that we're talking about each month. Yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. Thank you for mentioning that, Jennifer. I did see that and I was going to mention it. So I appreciate you doing that as well. All the best, guys. Uh, Nyawa and Chimi Gwech for taking the time to join me on the show and talk about Story Keepers. It's been a real pleasure and I really thank you. And, you know, I was thinking, Jennifer, you and I go way back too because of your we time. We do. Hey, PTN. And, uh, and yeah. <laughs> wow. 
And they are the voices of Jennifer David and Wabgishik Rice. They are the co-hosts of Story Keepers, which launched earlier this year. And as you heard Jennifer say and Wab say, you can find them on storykeeperspodcast.ca. And don't forget, if you check them out on their show, socials, you can also possibly win uh, some of the giveaways that they have online as well. Thanks for listening to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. We'll see you again next time. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.